We've been um, talking through the series, He Came, and really we've centered it around this idea that, that He came, that as Jesus came into the darkness, uh, to, to really to give sight to the blind, to, to, to illuminate the things that were dark, and He came into the darkness to those who were waiting, uh, specifically those who were searching, those who were actively waiting. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus and uh, how he was waiting in the, in the pursuit of climbing a tree and, and calling Jesus into his full existence. Uh, came into the darkness for those who are waiting. On Christmas Eve, we talked about the reality that he came as a man. We talked about the importance of that. That he had to come as a man, Paul says to the, to the church at Galatia, so that he could come in under the law and, and therefore uh, lift all of humanity from the curse of the law, anyone who would be found in Jesus, uh, and that he, he truly entered into our life. We talked about the story of uh, the calling of Levi, or Matthew, who became one of Jesus' disciples. He was a tax collector and really kind of looked at the, the reality of Matthew's profession. He really was the worst kind of tax collector, and the Pharisees were all up in Jesus' business because they couldn't understand why he would want to be with him, and Jesus said, I came for people just like him. And so we talked about that and what it means to us. And this morning I want to wrap this all up by noting that he didn't just come as a man, he actually came as a king. So Jesus came into the darkness to those who were waiting as a man and as a king. And so we want to consider what it means for Jesus to be a king. Over the last couple of years I've been interested in uh, my ancestry, where it is that my people <laughs> came from. I have an interesting last name, Eshba, and it's very anglicized. If you get it all the way back to its original form, it's a, it's a German name, Eschbach. And some of you have heard me uh, refer to the fact that I'm German uh, to, to express to you why sometimes I am a little bit emotionless, right? It's the Germanness in me. Uh, and so Eschbach, and really if you trace it back, there's a little town in Germany called Eschbach, and it's down in the, the west, southwest corner, kind of near Switzerland and near France, and uh, long ago, well before the Revolutionary War, my ancestors came across the ocean under religious persecution and started a new life in the Pennsylvania area, as many German people did. And so that's kind of my story. Well, Jesus has an interesting name too, right? Jesus Christ, we call him, first and last name, right? Well, Jesus is actually not his name. Did you ever know this? Jesus is not Jesus' name. Jesus' name is actually Joshua. His name is the Hebrew Yeshua. Uh, But for whatever reason, we transliterated his name into English and said, we're going to call him Jesus. And that stuck, and that's where we have it today. So Jesus is really Joshua. And really what that name is significant for is Joshua was the one who came and took the land with the people. And so God, in, in saying to Mary and Joseph, you're going to name him Yeshua, is saying, hey, he's going to be the one that finally reclaims the land and the kingdom for my people. And then we just throw Christ on there sometimes, right? But Jesus is the first name and Christ is the last name. But the truth is, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. Right? It actually, in many ways, should come first, Christ Jesus. Uh, and again, it's a transliteration. It's the Greek word Christos. And we're like, we're not sure what to do with that, so we're going to make up a word, Christ. And in Greek, it really means anointed one or Messiah. 
And now, if you kind of have studied the Bible or been in church for a while, the word Messiah, that's ringing a bell for you, right? Messiah, of course, has all kinds of Hebrew connotation to it, which is really, really important. See, the Old Testament prophets had long been telling the people that there is coming a day when God would restore His people from exile, gather them back up together, and and He would provide for them not only a land to live in, but a king just like David. See, when David was king, uh, that was the glory days of the people of God in the kingdom, right? That's when everything was as it should be. And we know it didn't last very long. But the prophets called the people and said, it's going to be like that again. There's going to be a king and a kingdom, and it's going to be just as God intended it to be. And from this came the, the messianic hope of the Jewish people of the days of Jesus. They longed for that kind of king or leader who would come. In uh, the mid-100 B.C., uh, 160, 170, somewhere in there, a man named uh, Judah or Judas Maccabeus uh, came sort of to prestige or or, uh, power in essence uh, in the Jewish land. The Jews were uh, subservient to the Seleucid Empire. Uh, maybe you've heard of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who is not a, not a good dude. Uh, if you want to read about him, he is not a good dude, and God met him a painful end. That could be some interesting reading for you this, this week. Um, he kind of was the, the head of the Seleucid. Remember, he, he did the abomination of desecration on the temple. He slaughtered a pig on, on the, the Jewish temple. And so the people were so stirred up by this that there was a priest named Judas Maccabeus who sort of gathered to people and his whole sort of family together and they, they led a revolt, a Maccabean revolt, and they actually, they actually kicked the Seleucids out of Israel. And, and in the midst of doing that, they restored the temple. And really out of the, the restoration of this temple in the middle of this revolt came the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Right? That's where it comes from. And so as they kicked them out finally and kind of restored power, the, the Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean family sort of came to rule in a messianic kind of way. And do you know what they did for uh, Judas Maccabeus when he kind of came in to take authority? You know what they did for him? They put him on a donkey and they walked him down a road. You know what they did? They laid down their garments and they laid down palm leaves. Right? And they yelled, Messiah. And this was 160 years before Jesus. Maybe a little more than that. Because he was the king, the promised one, they thought. And so Jesus enters right into this lineage, given the title Christ, and this is exactly how we're supposed to understand what this name means. It means king. Right? It means leader. It means authority. It means he's our one, the one that we follow. When Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And they give all kinds of different answers. And then he says, but I want to know who do you say that I am? Remember, and Peter very famously says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, for, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He's affirming that, yeah, that's right, that's who I am. And then Jesus says this radically important statement, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
And so basically he's saying on men like Peter and on Peter himself, the church is going to be built, but it's also going to be built in the understanding of this very simple confession that Jesus is the Christos. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is King. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're really saying is our King Joshua. (laughs) Or better yet, for our purposes, King Jesus. Our King Jesus. So early in Jesus' ministry, and of course John the Baptist is saying this first, Jesus uh, begins to preach and he says, you can turn here, uh, truth be told we won't be spending much time dissecting this verse specifically, but if you want to kind of follow along, we're in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It's Matthew four seventeen. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Right? And the, the verb there, the original language, really the idea of has come is true. And so it fits with our he came realities. That the kingdom has come. And here's the truth. The kingdom has come. Why? Because the king is present. Right? So one of the realities of Jesus coming is that the kingdom then comes too. So our very natural question to ask is, so what is this kingdom that Jesus talks about? If you're with us regularly here at Hope, you hear me talk about kingdom a lot. Because the kingdom of God is the prevailing reality of what God is accomplishing through Jesus now and forever. And really the the concept of kingdom, I think, is pretty difficult for us to understand because we are modern Western people and we don't live or haven't lived in a monarchy reality. We live in democracies, republics, whatever you want to call them. We basically vote people in and vote them out, right? And we're represented by people like us or who say they're like us and uh, so forth and so on. And so I think it's difficult for us to understand what a kingdom is, where there's absolute authority in a monarch. And for many of these monarchies, if you've studied history, the idea was that there was divine authority placed in the king or the queen uh, of the kingdom. And so the best way that I've tried to help uh, myself and all of us understand what, the, what is the kingdom of God is to think, what would the world look like if God was running the show every single day of every single minute. Now you're saying to me, theologically we know that he is. I get it. But if God's purposes and values were being lived out in every reality of the world, what would the world look like? It's the best, most simple way we can begin to understand what the kingdom of God really is. And kind of take it away from this abstract, esoteric, theological sort of term and make it real, what would your life look like? How would it be different if the values and the purposes of God were actually in full effect, not only for you and in you, but around you? Uh, There's a good theologian named George Ladd who's wrote extensively on the kingdom of God, and I think really uh, skillfully and insightfully done so. And, and he summarizes this idea of kingdom, I think, pretty succinctly and pretty well when he says that the, the, the Hebrew word malkuth 
and the, the, the Greek word basileia, both of which mean kingdom, really have in their central meaning this idea of the authority that is in the king or the queen. So we think about kingdoms, we think about land, we think about expanse, we think about the people, the subjects. But what he's saying, the truth is in these words, really it expressly means the rule, the authority, the power, the sovereignty that the queen or the king possesses in order to rule a given land or a given people. Right? And so we bring that meaning into understanding the kingdom of God and what we begin to see then is if Jesus is the Christ... If Jesus is the king, then what the kingdom that he brings means is the authority that he has to rule. The authority that he has to be in charge. The authority that he has to advance his agenda, as it were. And then we're forced to consider what does that mean for us as people who would call him king, to consider what it means for us to live in subjection to the king. Right? As a subject to the king. So Jesus says, hey, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come. Why is it come? Because the king is present. What is it? It's, it's his values. It's his authority. It's his rule. It's his ability and right to have this authority over us and really over the entire world. So, if this is true, Jesus is saying, if you believe I'm king and if you believe this kingdom, I have this right to advance my kingdom, then he really gives us one thing to do, doesn't he? And it's not a very pleasant thing, at least as we read it. He says, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. John the Baptist, of course, was preaching the same message before Jesus started preaching. And repentance is a, is a, it's a heavy kind of word to us. It's a word that is not pleasant. It's a word that means like sadness and things like that. And there's some truth to that. But I want to take the next bit of our time and really kind of tease out what repentance in its biblical sense, I think, really means. And, I, and I'm really helped by, by an author, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, who's written about this, uh, and I, w- I would recommend him to you. Uh, he's written about it on the Gospel Coalition blog and other places as well. And I think the first thing we need to do is we need to figure out what repentance is not that we have, unfortunately, associated it with for much of our lives. Right? The first thing that repentance is not is repentance is not regret. Right? Repentance is not regret. We oftentimes associate repentance with regret, and we do it, unfortunately, uh, wrongly so. Regret is really uh, feeling bad about the consequences that choices have led to. Right? Uh, in other words, not liking or feeling bad or wishing that the consequences that have happened because of our choices, because of our wrong choices... Uh, that have occurred. So let me give you an example of regret in my life. <laughs> when I was in college, uh, freshman year, um, I was very much enamored with a girl. And so when I was home on breaks, I would spend lots of time with her. And my parents had very established rules about when I needed to be home. And of course, um, 
I was 18, and I had started my freshman year of college, and so certainly that means that I'm now in full control of my own life, right? And so those, to me, were simply suggestions, you know, not actual rules. And so uh, I was at her house, and, and her parents were there. Everything was fine and legit, but I was there later than I needed to be. I was there past my parents' given curfew. And so the way that I decided I would sort of try to make that right is I would try to make it home really fast. Because after all, at 12.30 or 1 o'clock or whatever time it was, there's not many cars on the road, right? And so I got in my car and I made my way home and halfway through there was flying down the road and all of a sudden there were flashing lights way behind me in the distance. I was going so fast that it took the cop a long time over the hills to finally catch up to me. Uh, And she pulled me over and I was in a full-blown panic at this point. And she comes up to me and she says, do you know why I pulled you over? Like, why do cops ask this question? It's so unfortunate, isn't it? Like, you don't have to belittle me, right? We all know what's happened here. Just let's get on with it. Uh, and I say, yeah, I know. I was going too fast. She goes, well, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, man, I must have, must have been like 70 miles an hour. It was a 55 mile, 50 mile an hour road. I said, it must have been 70 miles an hour. And I knew I was going much faster than that, unfortunately. And she says to me, well, that's the first honest answer I've had all night. And I thought to myself, no, it wasn't honest at all. And uh, so she wrote me a ticket, uh, apparently for less than I deserved because I was honest, in which I wasn't. Uh, and I got back in my car, and around 1.30 or quarter to 2, I finally pulled into my driveway uh, and you kind of know how to, my dad is, you know, he's got rules. And, and so you get there and you go in and you think one of two things is going to happen, right? You're going to go in and you're going to meet, you're going to meet judgment immediately. You're going to go into silence and fret for the next six hours about what life will be like when my dad wakes up, even though you know he's already awake, right? Uh, and so, uh, my plan was to go to my mom, right? Because kids, they pit, us, they pit us against each other, don't they? So I went to my mom and said, Mom, you know, I was with was this girl, and you know how much I like her. It was so hard to go away. I don't get to see her that often. All this was going on. And, and I said, and I, got, I got a speeding ticket, and her eyes went to the roof. And she said, well, you're going to have to tell your dad. And I was like, well, I was kind of hoping you, you, <laughs> you would do that part for me, you know? And she said, no, no, you've, you've got to tell him. And so I told him, and it was hard, and he was angry. And, you know, sometimes dads say, he didn't say this, but, you know, sometimes dads will say, you know, I'm not angry at you, I'm just really disappointed in you. He didn't say it, but that's exactly what I heard loud and clear from his, his con- eye contact with me and how he's expressing himself. Uh, and and all of these things. And so punishment was levied, and you know what I felt for the next long period of time? Tons and tons of regret. I did little considering what I had done wrong, and tons of considering how my wrong choices had made life miserable for myself. That's not repentance. That's regret. I had to go to the magisterial district under my dad's orders and pay them in cash. (laughs) <laughs> so that I could be, you know, and, and again, belittled by the judge or whoever was there saying it. Now, see, isn't this painful? You don't want to do this again, do you? 
And all the time, regret, regret, regret. It's not repentance, it's regret. We're, we're sorry about the consequences that our wrong choices have brought. The second thing that repentance is not is repentance, uh, repentance is, is, is not an apology. Right? Sometimes we think, well, when I apologize, that means I'm repentant. Really, an apology, most of the time, is what comes after regret, <laughs> right? Or, uh, you know, what comes after something. We're dealing with the consequences. And the third thing that, that repentance is not is it's not embarrassment. And a lot of times we think repentance is embarrassed. Well, I was really embarrassed by what happened, and that means I'm repentant. Actually, it's, it's not true. Most of the time, our embarrassment has to do with our reputation being tarnished, not with dealing with the actual wrong choices or sin in our life. Can I tell you another story about personal embarrassment? When I was a senior in high school, uh, I took an elective class uh, called psychology. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. We'll check it out. And the teacher was a man named Mr. Bennett. And Mr. Bennett was well known for my whole high school as being a somewhat oblivious teacher. Uh, he had been a target shooter his whole life, and he never used earplugs. And he couldn't hear anything. And so he was the characterization of teachers that you see on comedy shows, right? Uh, he had hearing aids, and he still couldn't hear anything. And so people would say really, quite frankly, horrible things to this man. And he would never, he would smile at them. He would never hear it. And I was a pretty good kid in high school, but he gave us this project. He said, I want each of you to pick a chapter and to study it, and you're going to teach the class. And in my logical lawyer mind, that was, well, aren't you the teacher? Why do I have to do this, and why do we have to teach other stuff? So I said somewhat out loud, not very loud, but to the person next to me, man, this is stupid. Do you know what? That's the first thing Mr. Bennett heard all year, and maybe his whole life. He heard it. He got up and he came right over to my face and he said, Adam, this is not stupid. And you'll find out why I'm doing it. And I was so embarrassed. People had said the most profane things to this man, basically over the loudspeaker, and he never heard it. I said, this assignment is dumb. This is stupid. And he hears it. And I was caught in the moment. And I was the good kid, right? And when the good kid does something bad, this is highly embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. Both times, when I was caught speeding, and when I was caught saying an assignment was stupid in Mr. Bennett's class, I apologized profusely to my dad, to the police officer, to the judge, to the bank teller who was cashing out my entire life savings, (laughs) to Mr. Bennett, to the principal, to the people around me. You know, there's never any repentance in any of that. It was all dealing with the surface level of what's going on. So often we confuse what repentance is. The truth is that repentance actually is a change of mind. Right? It's the Greek word metanoia, and meta is this idea of changing, right? Metamorphosis, something that changes its appearance. And the, 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 the word noia means mind or your thoughts. It's about changing your mind or the way you think. It's why Paul says that we're renewed by, by, by um, transforming our minds, right? By, or transformed, excuse me, by renewing our minds, right? This is a very important reality in the process of following Jesus, of working on how we think about God. Uh, I think it was Tozer who said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
So repentance is really, it's not regret. (laughs) It's not embarrassment. It's not even apology. It's actually changing how you think about things. And very specifically, it's changing how you think about three things, I think. First, it's changing how you think about God. Changing what you think about God. It's not only beginning to believe that he's in charge, as most of us sort of give him but kind of don't like, you know? It's not only admitting that he's in charge, but it's actually believing that he has the right and the authority to be in charge. That's a change of mind. It's changing your mind about God. It's not believing that he's out to get you or he's out to hinder you or he's out to make life unpleasurable, or he's out to punish you, but actually believing that he actually loves you profoundly and deeply, more than you will ever in this lifetime begin to comprehend. And that actually he has your best life in mind with every direction he gives you. We talk so much, we don't talk, we hear so much, about this idea of pursuing your best life. If you want to pursue your best life, pursue God for crying out loud. He has your best life as his motivation. Repentance has to do with changing your mind about God. Second thing, and you probably know I'm going here, it has to do with changing your mind about yourself. Right? It's not only sort of admitting that you're not in charge but it's actually coming to believe that you do not have the right or the authority to be in charge. It's what it means to call Jesus the Christ and to say you're part of his kingdom. And it's actually believing not that, well, I'm a really good person. At the core, I'm really good. You know, I know I make mistakes here, there, and everywhere, but at the core, I'm really good. Do you know why that's a faulty premonition? Because if at the core you were good, then you would produce good things, right? There's something corrupt in the inner parts. I'm not telling you you're the worst person in the world, but there's something corrupt deep in us because we keep seeing mistakes and wrong choices and speeding at 1.30 and saying something is stupid in front of a teacher and much more pronounced things in my life. It's changing our mind about who we are and stop saying, well, I'm really I'm." I'm a really good person. I don't know why I keep doing these things. And beginning to say, you know what? Actually, I'm I'm deeply broken. I'm a deeply broken person. And and I'm willing to admit that. And I'm actually more sinful than I'd really ever let on to anyone. And the truth is, at my core, I'm very self-invested. And I'm very self-serving. And much about what I do is about myself. This is what repentance looks like. See, when I was speeding, or when I was saying something was stupid, I got embarrassed and I apologized. I had massive regret and I apologized. But neither of those two situations did I begin to think, why, why is this stuff happening in my life? Why, why do I keep seeing these wrong choices and these things happening? What's at the root of that? And begin to pursue a change of mind about who I am and about who God is. That's repentance. The third thing, and this kind of, kind of goes along with this, is we need to change our mind about our life and our stuff. <laughs> change our mind about our life and our stuff. 
I'm going to call it stuff because sometimes it's not just material things. It's also our stuff, you know? Baggage, emotional stuff, whatever. Connections, relationships, whatever it is. We change our mind about those things, I think. See, if we believe that God is rightfully in charge and we are rightfully not in charge, then it changes how we think about our life and our things, right? Because we begin to believe now that while we have stewardship, temporary sort of managerial responsibilities about our life and our things, we actually possess no control over them. It's not just for us to pick and choose what we want to do. And then we actually begin to consider, well then, if God's rightfully in charge and I'm rightfully not in charge and I'm really just managing these things, even though I think I own them, then what should I be using them for? Well, maybe for His purposes rather than for self-invested, self-serving realities. And maybe even more importantly, our life and our stuff should never so consume us or bog us down that it becomes difficult or impossible to follow Jesus. In the next few verses in chapter 4, I won't read them now, read them on your own. Famous verses where Jesus calls the fishermen to be his disciples, remember? It says, hey Peter, come follow me. You know? and, it, and it says fascinating things it says about him. He says, at once, immediately, he dropped his things and he followed Jesus. Why? Because he had a belief about who Jesus was that enabled him in the moment to make the right decision. If he was like, well, I'm not sure if Jesus is the Christ, and I don't even know if this kingdom thing is happening, what's he going to say? He's going to teeter. Well, what's the right thing here? Man, I've, I've got a huge catch in my boat. I've owned this boat for a while. It's a family heirloom. My whole family's here. Everything I own is here. I'm not sure what I want to do. Jesus gave me a couple of days to think about this. He doesn't do any of that. Right? Because he has a steadfast belief in who Jesus is as king and a belief in what Jesus is doing through his authority and rule in the kingdom that he says, yep, I'm on board. Here I go. God will make the right choice with this. Remarkable. Stunningly obedient. And it is truly remarkable. And yet for me, as a man who's given his whole life to serve God, as people say, I don't live like that. I negotiate. I bicker. I think things are mine. I'm bogged down by things. My budget is centered around meeting my bills. You know? Like I get it. It's hard. But there's a whole different way. And what I want to get at this morning is I think the core of it is not so much, well, we've got to be better at budgeting. We've got to put God first over here. It's no, what do I really believe about who Jesus is? That's the core question. Because if he's king and his kingdom is here, it changes how I live. It changes radically how I live. You see it? Stunning. Fascinating. Repentance is changing how we think. But it's changing how we think that ought to lead to a change in how we act. A change in how we behave. You know? Regret is fading. You know? I probably didn't speed for a good month. <laughs> you know? And my parents will tell you that you know, from the age of 16 to 22, 
I racked up some fines in the automobile world, you know, um, because I didn't change, because I was dealing with regret and embarrassment and just apologizing to deal with it, never thinking about the deeper realities of things. But repentance is, is, is changing how we think that ought to lead to a change in how we behave. I, I've shared this quote, this statement with you, church, several times now. Uh, it's a statement that, that someone made that I was in an, an audience when I was a teenager, and it, it, is, it is as clear to me now as it was then when he said it. Is that you only truly believe that which activates you. If you aren't doing anything about it, then you don't believe it. You might think you believe it. You might think it sounds nice. But if you aren't acting on it, you don't believe it. Right? Do I believe that I love my wife? Yes. Right? I married her. I bought her a ring that I couldn't afford when I was 21 years old. You know, All these things. We act on these things because we believe them. We say, well, Jesus is the king. Of course he is. And we do nothing about it. What does that mean? Right? You only truly believe that which activates you. If you are feeling like in your life there is a stagnation in your pursuit of Jesus, if there is a disconnect, can I ask you to go back to the fundamental question, what do you believe about Jesus? Is He your Savior? Which is nice, but that has a lot to do about what He did for you, right? self-centered reality. Or is He the King? That begins to change how we live. If we truly believe that Jesus is the King, if we truly believe that He has the right and the authority and the sovereignty to rule, and that we then are to consider how we live in subjection to Him, then the only thing we can begin to do is to do what He tells us to do. Right? Things like love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, the word strength there is the, is the Hebrew word mayod. It means very. Right? So like with everything, with your uh. You know? To love others as yourself. How are you doing at that? It's not about getting better at that. It's about what do I believe about Jesus? To make disciples of all the people in your lives. How are you making the Gospel known to those around you? Who are you investing in? Who are you discipling? How are you trying to train people below you? How are you trying to to open people's eyes to the truth of the Gospel? If it's not happening, it's not that you need better tools or resources. It's about what do you believe about who Jesus truly is? His command to be generous. (laughs) How are you doing at that? Right? We can't have a seminar. I can't teach a three-point sermon that's going to make you be generous. You're only generous when you truly reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done. The issue isn't how for you to be more generous. The issue is what do you believe about Jesus? Is he truly the king that gave away everything, including his life? That changes you. Changes you. Changes how we think about how we act. How are you caring for the poor and the less fortunate? This is central to Jesus' commands to His people, right? Well, that's difficult. I don't have time for that. Well, they got themselves into that problem themselves. You know, well, 
If you understood all the things I'm dealing with in my life, I, I, I get it. I'm failing at all of these things too. But the reason that we're struggling in them is not that we need better tools. It is not that we need better realities. It is not that we need uh, better sermons. It is not that we need new interpretations. It's that we need to believe Jesus when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because when we believe, then we act. Jesus came into the darkness to those who are waiting as a man to rescue us, but as a king to lead us. When we call him Christ, we call him king. And he is right to have that authority. It is the kingdom that God has entrusted to him. His kingdom is not the ever-expanding church. His kingdom is not the United States of America. His kingdom is not something... His kingdom is his right and authority to rule. His law, his way, his values. And our response to it is repentance. What does that mean? Getting all emotional about stuff? Yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. We gotta, we gotta, you know, lament our sin, but we gotta change how we think. That this world is actually doesn't revolve around us. But it does revolve around him. And so if he says jump, we say how high. (laughs) If he says come, we say, okay. If he says give, we say, ah, all right. Not because he has given us a foolproof manual that explains to us how this is the best choice for us, but because he's the king and we're not. We change our minds so that we can change our actions. I'm astounded. We'll finish with this. I'm astounded again. I kind of talked about this already. Every one of these situations that we've talked about, Zacchaeus first, and then Matthew on Christmas Eve, and then the disciples again today, there's this word immediately. It shows up in all of them, right? Jesus says, hey, come with me. And it says, immediately they go. Is that there because it's a great storytelling word? No, it's there because it's truth, right? What the writers want us to know is that they were willing to leave their livelihood to follow this man. You wouldn't do it unless you believed he was king and he was bringing his kingdom. And you certainly wouldn't do it with the immediacy unless you had come to solidly believe that he was who he said he was. So this morning, as we enter into a whole new year, as we finish up the realities of he came and all the wonderful things that it has done for us, right, to giving us light and sight, to to finally meeting our hope for rescue, and then the ultimate reality of rescue and salvation, we also remember that he came to rule. That he came to lead. That he came as king. That he has the authority to reign that we do not. And that we need to begin to think differently so we can act differently. Can I pray with you?